Welcome to This Is Comp, an officially subsidized subsidiary. That was that was terrible. I'm going to start over. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to This Is Comp, a series of Discord and Rhyme minisodes where we talk about multi-artist compilations song by song. We are on Twitter and Instagram at Discord Pod, and you can get access to these episodes six weeks early by signing up on our Patreon at patreon.com slash discordpod. A month and a half. A month and a half. That's a long time, you guys. So who's here? I'm Amanda Rogers. Rich Bennell. And John McFerrin. And we are on Motown, the complete number ones, disc three, tracks seven through twelve. And while we're heading back through the Motown forest, um, we just wanted to reiterate, this is something we've said before, but most of us come from a mostly rock background, and that's just where our perspective tends to be. And so we kind of tend to skew in that direction a little bit, which can sometimes sound a little weird when we're talking about R&B, but... We do our best. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is something I think about that in doing the show that I don't want to present rock as the default. But when we compare artists to each other, the arrows in our head just kind of naturally point in the rock direction based on how we mm-hmm. were trained. Yeah, and except for John, his brain points toward Beethoven. Yeah, in all things. <laughs> Always Beethoven. Yeah. Dave Beethoven. <laughs> all right, should we get the show on the road? Yeah, let's do it. All right, we're starting in a real good place. This is the Jackson 5. I want you back. Released in October 1969, hit number one on the Hot 100 because, duh, in January 1970, which beat out Venus, Raindrops Keep Falling on My Head, and A Whole Lot of Love. America was very confused at this time. Not Raindrops Keep Falling on My Head. Was Mm. that a Simpsons joke? No, it was just me defending Raindrops Keep Falling on My Head. Oh, okay. It's it's really hard to tell sometimes. This also hit number one on the R&B chart, of course, ahead of Someday We'll Be Together and Thank You for Letting Me Be Myself Again, speaking of Sly Stone, which is a much better group of songs. Mm -hmm. The Jackson family is from Gary, Indiana, which is very close to where I grew up and for a while was the murder capital of the United States. 
It used to be a very prosperous steel manufacturing town, and then everything got outsourced and the city collapsed. So now picture something like Detroit, but possibly worse. You should vacation there. There are a whole bunch of Jackson kids, but the ones we're talking about right now are Jackie, Tito, Jermaine, Marlon, and Michael. Their dad, Joe, started organizing them into a singing group as early as 1964 when Michael was five years old. And they spent several years performing at talent shows and other local events until eventually Joe got them signed to a couple of small labels, including Oneiderful Records. Oh, wait, no, that's wonderful. (laughs) But it didn't pan out. Wow, I got that before you finished the joke. (laughs) I'm just tuned to your wavelength. Yeah. After a while, they were brought to Barry Gordy's attention, and he was reluctant to bring on another kid act after little Stevie Wonder. Uh, But he was impressed enough with these guys that he went ahead and signed them to Motown. Their first few recordings in Detroit, however, weren't that great. So Gordy sent them out to L.A., uh, where they did the majority of their subsequent songs, and put together a whole new songwriting and production team called The Corporation. Specifically to write hits for the Jackson 5. Remember how we've compared Motown to an assembly line? Gordy was just leaning into this. So Diana Ross did not actually discover the Jackson 5, but everybody decided to pretend she did. To both acts mutual benefit. Um, so their first album was called Diana Ross Presents the Jackson 5. Came out in 1969. And at that time, the Jacksons ranged in age from 18 down to 10. Which is nuts. Because is this or is this not one of the best songs you've ever heard? Yeah, I thought so. <laughs> one of the best bass lines, one of the it best is. chord progressions, one of the best arrangements. That bass line is to die for. It's so good. And this song. It's one of the best any up. number of things. Oh, yeah. This song is on like any list of the best whatever category of songs that you care to look at. It's in there somewhere. And it's the, the chord progression in the chorus has been called the greatest of all time, which is hard to argue with. The song is spectacular. What do you guys think? Well, I want to go back to the corporation because uh, it, it consisted of Alfonso, Arfons, Mazel, Freddie Perrin, Deke Richards, and Barry Gordy. He was in the corporation. He had to be part of the oh. corporation. Yeah. And as you was said- he the CEO of the corporation? He had to have been. Yep. <laughs> and was. Uh, but yeah, I they existed solely so. to write hits for the Jackson 5. But one, thing, I, one yeah. thing that I think is funny about them is that none of the songwriters were credited on the sleeve because Gordy wasn't- gonna have another Holland is your Holland situation where the writers became stars in their own right. Oh no. Yeah, like this is a real last season of Mad Men story, the only you know, the only lens through which we know the oh. late sixties. <laughs> <laughs> so the people who wrote and arranged this amazing song didn't get any credit for that? So as usual, and as with the Funk Brothers, it's very difficult to tell who performs on the song, but uh, just v- through various sources, people have assembled. So Mazel and Perrin from the from the corporation actually played that piano glissando that opens the song, that, you mm. know, that amazing one. It's uh, so good. And so the Jackson 5, I, I'm not sure, like, how much they individually play, play on the song. They were skilled musicians, but Barry Gordy... Oh, yeah. He would just leave nothing to chance. So this song, and I think just basically every other Jackson 5 studio song was performed by session ringers. I kind and of assumed that the L.A. recordings were rotating members of the Wrecking Crew. So it's Ronnie Rancifer on piano and keyboards, Louis, Louis Shelton on guitar, David T. Walker on that awesome rhythm guitar, you know, that famous rhythm guitar, mm-hmm. Wilton Felter on bass guitar. I could just say that about every instrument here. Uh, Don yeah. Peake has another guitar part, Johnny Jackson on drums, Gene Pello on drums, Clarence McDonald on keyboards, Joe Sample on piano, and he also showed up on Steely Dan's Asia, uh, and, oh, wow. Sa- and Sandra Crouch on percussion. And that's an orchestra right there. 
yeah, there's so many people. Yeah. Which makes sense. This is a very dense yeah. song mm-hmm. musically. And every bit of it is so good. John, how about you? So I have to confess that I've never really enjoyed the albums of the mature Michael Jackson. So for a long time, I had the Jackson 5 filed away in my mind as an act that wasn't really worthy of my attention. I'm really glad this box set gave me a chance to hear these songs again in a proper context and with fresh ears. Good. Yeah, because the first two singles here are fantastic. And the third is also good, though I have some small reservations I'll get to later. The young Michael Jackson is such a spectacular talent. I mean, I'm not breaking ground and saying that, but it, it just really, really jumps through. And he sounds so happy and innocent and full of life even as he's singing lyrics that are clearly meant for a much older singer. I think my favorite part of the song is the bridge, with Jackson, with Jackson mixing the wordless buzz with his brothers, punctuating mm-hmm. each line with all I want and all I need, and that final sky high, all I need. Oh, it's just spectacular. So good. Oh, and that bass. Yeah, this, this song is, is, is basically perfect. Yeah. The only thing that kind of niggles at me just a little bit is something that you just mentioned is this this very mature heartfelt breakup song being performed by an infant yeah but that voice oh man it's hard to argue with that singing voice mm-hmm. if anything though like uh, in a certain sense there's a there's a little bit of uh, i don't want to call it creepiness but i guess that's the best word for it with mm-hmm. with assigning that to him but th- then at the same time i think about with little Stevie Wonder at this point, like eight years earlier, he'd been thrown into the unenviable task of doing an album of Ray Charles covers, and he just couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. He, like he he sounded like a kid singing Ray Charles, and it was completely unconvincing. It it didn't work. Whereas Michael Jackson is able to just step in and and nail this more mature material right away. Yeah. And the fact that it took me, I've been hearing this song my entire life, and it took me until about last week to finally realize, oh, wait, that's weird. Yeah. So I think that's probably indicative of how hard he sells it. So one thing I want to say about all three of these songs, my favorite thing about them is the energy. And it's not that prior Motown wasn't energetic or or anything, but... Uh, what I mean about that is that Michael just doesn't let you get bored for a single beat. Mm-hmm. And I, yeah. I don't I don't mean that figuratively. I mean beat. Because as soon as the first verse is over, right on the one, he's 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 already on the second verse. No time to breathe. Like, no instrumental yeah. break. And that's true yeah. of all three songs in this set. It's true. They don't waste any uh, it's time. It's one of my favorite things about them. And I have one more thing. So thanks to the Discord and Rhyme randomizer, I'm going to have to do the hip-hop heavy lifting in this episode. Uh, so... <laughs> I Want You Back is one of the most sampled songs of all time because it has a groove that keeps changing and is divided between mm. two stereo channels. So you can actually take mm. pieces of the instrumentation and separate them oh. more easily. Yeah, yeah, it'd be easy to lift ind- individual bits from this, huh? Yep. Uh, so there are too many samples to play. So I'm just going to play the couple that are the most well-known. Uh, so you definitely know this one. It's Jump by Criss Cross. Yeah, the piano riff is a slowed down. I want you back on that song. Yeah, and, yeah, and the other one is Izzo H O V A by Jay Z, better known to most as H to the Izzo. H to the Izzo, V to the Izzo. But shizzle my nizzle used to dribble down in VA. Was hurting them in the home of the turpins. Got it dirt cheap for them. Plus, if they were short with cheese, I would work with them. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I hear mm-hmm. it now. Yeah. What's your favorite song on the Blueprint, Amanda? Remind me what they are. <laughs> 
I swear I know this. Let's just say the takeover. <laughs> okay. You didn't just set me up to look like a fool, did you? No, takeover is great. Okay, good. The bakeover. Okay. The Great British Bakeover. Okay. <laughs> let's, let's move on. All right. Next song then is our old pal Stevie Wonder. Yester me, yester you, yesterday. and it peaked at number seven on the Hot 100 at the time when the number one hit was Leaving on a Jet Plane by Peter, Paul, and Mary. Hit number five on the R&B chart under the number one hit Baby, I'm For Real by the Originals. It's on here because it got to number one in Norway and the people who made this comp are a bunch of cheaters. Yeah. I, I don't know. It's all right. I mean, I, I, I'm not mad at it. But the, the attempted wordplay doesn't work even a little bit. Stevie did better around this time. So we are absolutely not out of great Motown songs. Like, there are some bangers in the next set, let me tell you. Mm -hmm. But the ones that aren't Jackson 5 songs in this set, spoiler, not a big fan. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So I normally think Stevie's cute turns of phrase are really funny and part of what makes him Stevie. Uh, Like, I Mm -hmm. I remember back in the Songs in the Key of Life episode, Ben took issue with Good Morning Evening Friends from Love's in Need of Love Today. But I think that one's hilarious and really charming. I love that. Yeah. It's totally something that a magnanimous presence like Stevie would do to introduce (laughs) you to his album. So uh, let's consider that a correction uh, to what Ben said. But anyway, uh, but, but, but Stevie didn't write this one and he's not near and he's not nearly as good at selling someone else's dumb words. Yeah, I don't dislike this one, but I find it clearly second rate as Mm -hmm. far as late 60s Stevie goes. Yeah. And I find it a strange quirk of history that this song could make it onto the box set, but that there was absolutely no way in which my Sharia more qualified. That sucks. Yeah. The thing is, this song comes from somewhat of a dead period in Stevie's evolution, which can clearly be seen in his 1969 album, also called My Sharia More, Mm -hmm. which has this song buried in the middle. Whereas the album, for once in my life, gave a glimpse into what could happen if Stevie had the chance to make something with some cohesion, My Sharia More is the classic model of monster hit plus whatever we can scrounge up to get the album up to 30 minutes in full Mm. force. Yeah, because my Sharia Moore is so great. It's really, really nice. But with this song and that album, when I think of this song, I think of how it appeared on an album that had a Rodgers and Hammerstein cover and Hello Young Lovers, a Doors cover, Light My Fire. Yep. For real? How have I never heard this? (laughs) A cover (laughs) of the jazz standard at last and a whole bunch of other random spare parts. 
This song may make the best of its foundation, as Stevie gives an effective delivery that squeezes every last bit of potential emotion and entertainment from what he was provided, but the foundation was kind of rotten. It's a good way to put it. The Doors cover is funny, but it's not actually good. Well, I didn't expect it to be. I'm glad this gave you a chance to cover a micro period of Stevie history that you didn't get to cover in the Intervisions episode. <laughs> the yeah, My Sharia Moore period. <laughs> Eventually, like, we're going to cover Stevie's entire life. The thing is, I, I, I had, I had hope and expectations. Oh, this is two, between other two other albums that I already know that are good. This might be good. It's like, well, it's, it's amusing. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we're essentially covering Stevie three times. Songs in the Key of Life, Intervisions, and over the course of this compilation. And right yeah. so. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. There's it. That's I wouldn't have it any other way. And we'll do them a fourth time. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Now that we've wrung every scrap of meaning out of that song, let's move back to the Jackson 5 with ABC. was released on February 24th, 1970. And it reached number one on the R&B chart the week of April 4th and reached number one on the pop chart the week of April 25th. As with I Want You Back, it was written and produced by the collective known as The Corporation. And it's the song that dethroned Let It Be from the top of the pop chart. And that's no small feat. Suck it, the Beatles. (laughs) Yeah, we won't be hearing from them anymore. The bulk of the vocals in this one largely fall to Michael, with the others uh, contributing in the verses and in the bridge. At its heart, this is essentially a disco song, which is pretty incredible for something from 1970. And aside from the vocal interplay, the most attractive elements are the bass line, the terrific drums, and in particular, the great cymbal work in the bridge, as well as the piano underpinning things during the bridge. Lyrically, it's an extended analogy of how learning to love is just like learning various basic principles in elementary school. Though, if they're trying to make the point that this comparison means learning to love is easy, I would question some choices in the specific lyrics. For instance, in one early line from Jermaine, we're told that it's just like I before E except after C. But of course, this breaks down when your foreign neighbor Keith receives eight counterfeit beige slaves from feisty caffeinated (laughs) weightlifters. Or in I'll another ask my sp- brother Keith if that's ever happened to him. Yeah. Or in or another spot. Keith. Yeah, our richest brother Keith. Or in another spot, we're told that it's easy as one, two, three. Well, what if this is actually an excerpt from the Fibonacci sequence? Oh, for f- And the next sake. number is actually five instead of four. Are you math-splaining to the Jackson 5, John? I am. <laughs> if that's the case, then I suppose the lesson here is actually that if you're somebody who overthinks everything, learning to love is hopelessly complicated which would match my experience into my late 20s. 
Jokes aside, uh, this is about as great of a song as I Want You Back, and it's gone down as a Stone Cold classic. Along with I Want You Back, it is included on a list kept by the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame of the 500 songs that shaped rock, and it completely deserves it. Yeah, I, I like I Want You Back a little bit better than ABC, but everything I said about that one applies to this one, too. They're, it's just so groovy. <laughs> yeah, this is another one that I was temporarily preparing to diss on, you know, like <gasps> all of Echoes. <gasps> But then just three seconds into the intro, I surrendered. It's irresistible. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that what happened was, well, so, like, Michael Jackson was one of the first artists I got into as a kid. Like, say, like, when I was, like, seven or eight. And I remember listening to a bunch of, or, and I remember, like, a special around when the Dangerous album came out, uh, showing a bunch of, like, old performances and music videos, one of which was ABC, which I, and I watched it really late at night. And then I got a night terror. Oh, oh no. no! Yeah, so I associate yeah, ABC with that song. I've managed to separate it since then, but uh, being a child is a psychologically complex time. Ain't that the truth? But as for the song itself, I never, I, uh, I never noticed that this one isn't just Michael. Yeah, he throws some of the verses to Jermaine, and on that post-chorus or bridge, uh, you get both Tito and Jackie. And, and and they put you know Michael front and center, and I think I mean that's partly because his singing was amazing, and partly because he was a little bit of a novelty. Mm -hmm. But it's not like his brothers were not good singers. They were all fantastic. Yeah. And this one's got another big sample. Oh, yeah? So Naughty by Nature stripped this one for parts in their 1991 hit OPP. Oh! I've heard that song how many times and I never noticed that sample. Yeah, OPP, by the way, is way less easy than 123 and way less family friendly, so I won't go into it. Hmm. <laughs> all right, is that all we have for the alphabet? Yeah. Sure. Okay, next up is Diana Ross. Reach out and touch, parentheses, somebody's hand, close parentheses. Reach out and touch somebody's hand. Make this world a better place if you can. John, I demand you karaoke this the next time we get together. I may have to. A lot of swing with fake lighters in the interim there. <laughs> so Reach Out and Touch Somebody's Hand was released in 1970, and it peaked and it peaked at number 7 R&B and only number 20 on the Hot 100, and only number 10 on Cashbox. Why is this here? Because it hit number 1 in Record World. Sure. What the they hell is Record World? They found another magazine to uh, that it hit number 1 in. I don't know. It, it, Ugh. If they wanted to get a song in, they could have found it in, like, a school newspaper or something. A bunch of cheaters. Yeah. So this is finally, finally the first solo Diana Ross single. Though, amusingly enough, the Supremes did their own cover of this with new frontwoman Jean Terrell. And also the first Supreme single without Diana Ross, Up the Ladders to the Roof, actually outcharted this song at number 10. 
uh, but it underperformed at Record World, so it's not on this compilation. But the Supreme song was only a final blaze of glory before Diana Ross's career surged to greater heights, and we'll be hearing from her a bunch of times as we move along. So despite only modest radio play, this one has managed to endure because Diana Ross traditionally uses it to close her live shows, and she encourages concert goers to reach out and touch the hand of the person next to them, which... We've already hit some fun dispatches from what the world used to be like on the show, but this one really tops them, I have to say. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) It's hard to imagine now, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, so this feels like an early model to me for all the big celebrity benefit songs. And Ashford and Simpson, who wrote the song, actually performed it at the Philadelphia portion of Live Aid. Oh. And I did watch a video from a 1979 performance, and and the way Diana Ross interacts directly with the audience basically marks her transition into full diva. (laughs) But uh, I don't like this one. Yeah, the song blows. I'm just I'm just going to come right out and say it. Yeah, you said before we started that there was one song in the set you hated, and I knew immediately yeah. it was this one. <laughs> oh, how well you know me. This is just the worst kind of 70s glop. It's stuff like this that makes me think I don't like music from the 70s, I mean, which is insane because we've the 1970s are the dec- decade we have covered on Discord and Rhyme by far the most, like two-thirds of our episodes are from the 70s and they're all amazing albums but it's this kind of garbage that gives the decade a bad name here here i want to hate this but i actually don't the the thing is for me this song desperately wants to suck it's trying so hard to just (laughs) be as bad as you guys say but diana ross just can't quite let it i mean yes it's dripping with syrup it's dripping with schlock but she has so much personality and variety in her singing that even a song like this, this, for me, becomes kind of sort of bearable. Plus, I like the decision to start the song with the chorus, and the transition into the verse with the just try backing vocals, to my ears, is really slick, as is the transition back into the chorus with the, with the emphatic why don't you vocal. So, yes, my initial impression was, <laughs> and yet it, it kind of sort of won me over. Well, you paid way closer attention to it than I did. Maybe I did, yeah. My reaction to it is usually, this isn't You Can't Hurry, Love, and I skip it. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. It's not. That is a major flaw. <laughs> it's true. That's a, that's a problem with most songs. Yeah, like Carousel Ombra. Yeah. Or Led Zeppelin. <laughs> yeah. The Revealing Science of God. <laughs> I think I just killed John. Should we move on? Yeah, Probably. let's do it. Oh, I'm having a terrible giggle fit now, so I'll just I'll try to get myself under control during the four tops singing. It's all in the game. The gratuitous yes references are supposed to be my game. <laughs> <laughs>
This one's history is a little wild. It's a cover of a cover of a cover. The original song is based on a melody written by Charles Dawes in 1911, who was vice president to Calvin Coolidge, and is therefore the only number one hit to be written by an American vice president or a Nobel Peace Prize laureate, both of which Dawes was. So, Carl Sigmund put lyrics to the song in 1951, and Tommy Edwards took it to number one in 1958. So, this this version came out in 1970 and got to number 24 on the Hot 100 and number 6 R&B. And the number one R&B and Hot 100 hit that week was the very next song on this comp. What will it be? Hmm. And after all that, the song is on here because it hit number one on Cashbox R&B. So oh, it did? Yep. Sure. Yeah. Oh, I figured it was here because the prior version had hit number one. And I was intrigued by that because this is the first one where it was a cover of a number one song rather than a cover of it got to number one. Like as far as I know, Paul Young never had a number one hit with this. Yeah, that would open up. That would open up a whole can of worms and a whole bunch of bad songs. I imagine. <laughs> Complete Motown number ones, volume two. Well, hey, then we might have Stevie's "Light My Fire" on here. That's true. That would be the. <laughs> that, that would be on here. Yeah. <laughs> you want to do that episode? Be my guest. <laughs> yeah. So I'm really feeling the limitations of the compilation here, unless the idea was for it to bring in some out of nowhere picks that you may not have heard. Because uh, I can't believe the seventh dimensional chess they played to get a song by Calvin Coolidge's vice president on this compilation. Like, <laughs> who cares? Uh, when there are so many four top songs already missing on here. And, and so if any listeners are somehow learning about Motown from us, uh, well, first off, my condolences. But you're also missing some key four top singles, such as Baby, I Need Your Loving." Baby, I need your it's not on here, is it? Nope. Oh, no. And of course, standing in the shadows of love. So good. So yeah, a little education on the four tops, uh, just in case you think their only three songs are Reach Out, Sugar Pie, and It's All in the Game. <laughs> so what do you think of It's All in the Game? Nice, it's okay. That's about all I have. Like, I like it a lot better than Reach Out and Touch parentheses, somebody's hand close parentheses, but not nearly as much as, like, the Jackson 5 ones on here. I don't even like it as much as Yester Me, Yester You, Yesterday. But yeah, I mean, the song is perfectly fine. Like, I, I don't dislike it. I don't necessarily skip it every time, but I don't particularly enjoy it either. It's kind of boring. For me, this one's kind of a big blob of nothing, but it's kind of a lovely big blob of nothing. Yeah, I mean, I can't disagree with that. Yeah. The scene in the second verse and one of the choruses kind of reminds me of very early solo Scott Walker, which <laughs> isn't the worst thing. And the brief wordless did it a dip bits are really nice there's also a decent amount of variety in the orchestration that i appreciate for instance there's a brief bit of pizzicato playing in the strings and there's a good balance between the different parts of the string section rather than just having them constantly blend together as a single amorphous blob as sometimes happens in orchestration for pop songs so it's hardly among the top tier of four top songs but it's not bad all right well with that ringing endorsement let's move back to the jackson five 
This is The Love You Save. May 13th, 1970, and it reached number one on the R&B chart the week of June 20th, and reached number one on the pop chart the week of June 27th. This one isn't quite as ubiquitous as the songs that came before it, and part of the reason for that is that the echoes of songs from a few years earlier are pretty hard to ignore. The prominent use of stop and the way it's delivered can't help but immediately bring to mind Stop in the Name of Love by the Supremes from five years earlier. But there's a bit of a blatant lyrical theft from a song that had reached number two on the R&B chart a few years earlier as well. The Love You Save May Be Your Own by Joe Tex, released on the Atlantic label in 1966. It doesn't sound at all the same as this one, but the lyrics are in a similar vein. But I ain't never in my life before seen so many love affairs go wrong as I do today. I want you to stop and find out what's wrong, get it right, or just leave love love alone, because the love you save today maybe will be your own. Now, as with the first two major Jackson 5 singles, this is a lot of fun, and for a lot of the same reasons as those two singles. A great bass line, a great groove, and the main vocal melody, some great short bursts where the song clearly turns into proto-disco, and the usual great singing. What will ultimately decide how somebody feels about this song, though, is how much one is willing to overlook any faults in the lyrics. I roll my eyes a little bit at the lines, Isaac said he kissed you beneath the apple tree. When Benji held your hand, he felt electricity. When Alexander called you, he said he ran your chimes. Christopher discovered you're way ahead of your times. I know the lyrics are trying to be clever by bringing in allusions to Isaac Newton, Ben Franklin, Alexander Graham Bell, and Christopher Columbus. But I don't understand why the song needed to randomly make these figures into elementary school students vying for the affection of the main female character. The greatest difficulty for me, though comes from the main lyrical thrust of the song. For all of the posturing of concern by the singer for the girl in question, there's a sense in which these lyrics are essentially a grade school version of why would somebody want to buy the cow if they can get the milk for free? And while I understand the problems inherent in judging lyrics from a given era using sensibilities taken from a later period, there's also a clear sense that these lyrics could only have been written by men. It's not the kind of blatant misogyny that sometimes bothered me on, say, Paul's Boutique by the Beastie Boys, but the way in which the singer is lording the prospect of future loneliness over this girl bothers me at least a little bit. And yet, for all of that, I can always just choose to do what I often do in situations like this. Let the lyrics fade into the background and just enjoy the song in terms of surface elements without paying enough attention to get to the parts that bother me. And when I do this, I find that there's plenty to like. Well... 
that is what I get for not paying any attention at all to the lyrics. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of the sense I get from the lyrics, too. Like, I think it's, I think they're supposed to be cute. Like, uh, well, obviously they're supposed to be cute. It's the Jackson 5, but, like, reading them, you get, a re- you get a real sense of toxic masculinity begins in the schoolyard. Yeah. Yeah. Again, like, I, I didn't read the lyrics until I'd listened to the song several times, and they, they slightly took me aback. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and like I said, I, I paid zero attention at all to the lyrics, because... Which is kind of unusual for me. I'm usually like on on Nuggets. I was the one who ruined all the songs for you guys because the lyrics were so horrifying. Well, I'm giving you a break this time. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for well, I did the yes reference for you. You're doing the horrifying lyrics for me. There the, you go. the Jackson Five are the one relatively unsullied part of Michael Jackson's career. We're doing our best to sully it. Yep. But I mean, even when you were going through that list of like he held your hand and he rang your chimes, holy cow. I, I just kept thinking it sounds a lot like, hey there, slut, you know? A little bit, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's so, I mean, what I was going to say was, you know, this is not as good as ABC and I Want You Back, but let's face it, nothing is. But it's a, it's a perfectly fine and catchy and enjoyable song. But my opinion has revised significantly downward. I don't dislike it. I want to be clear. Like, I, I, I just wanted to give... I wanted to give some insight that I had into it that went beyond, oh, this is catchy and fun. Like, mm-hmm. the, the lyrics really did a bit of a number on me. Yeah, and I that's, really I mean, that's good to point out. And you're right that we can't, we can't judge things from 1970 by modern standards. That's, I mean, you, you just can't. But that doesn't mean I have to like it. But the song itself, I, I like all of the descending melody lines here. They make it feel like the song is falling down a bunch of little staircases as it goes along. Or a roller coaster. Like, I think roller coaster is a good way to describe the kind of continuous motion of the melody in a Jackson 5 song. Uh, but, so another thing I wanted to go to is the uh, the Diana Ross connection. Like, the stop. Uh, because, like, mm. one, th- one thing about the group is that they received extensive media coaching. And you can really tell this when you... Um, uh, when you watch one of their performances and then like afterwards when they're being interviewed, Michael just jumps right up to talk to the guy, which is not something you would mm. expect of the youngest member of a family. <laughs> yeah, he was, what, 10? Yeah, Michael Jackson yeah. wasn't always the most famous person in the world. But like, so apparent, but apparently part of the early Jackson 5 mythos that they were supposed to spread was that Diana Ross discovered them, which wasn't yeah. true at all. She discovered them the same way Columbus discovered America. There you go. <laughs> I, guess, I guess if they made the comparison... Yeah, but they were they were like good friends. I mean, like apparently, like Diana, mm-hmm. Diana Ross wasn't that much older than them, and she was like a big sister to them. And I I do want to mention real quick that the songs below this on the Hot 100 this week included "Mama Told Me Not to Come" by Three Dog Night, "The Long and Winding Road" by the Beatles, and "The Wonder of You" by Elvis Presley. Because again, this was a very confusing time for America. And you might have noticed that these three Jackson Five songs all hit number one, and this was a record at the time. Like the the first. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, we should have mentioned that. Yeah, the first three singles by an act hitting number one, uh, and yeah. they continued it with their fourth, which we'll hear pretty soon. Yeah. Woo. Woo. But I think that brings us to the end of this set. I think it does. This was a mediocre set, but there's better coming up. So just you wait. Yeah. Thanks for saving this one, Jackson Five. Yeah. What would we do without you?
Thanks very much for listening to This Is Comp, a subsidiary of the Discord and Rhyme podcast. The opening theme music for this series is the Motown song by Rod Stewart featuring The Temptations. The closing theme is performed by Kenneth Crayley and based on This Is Pop by XTC with new lyrics by Adam Smith of the Hector Collectors. You can hear Kenneth's music at Kenneth Crayley, K-R-A-Y-L-I-E dot bandcamp.com and his band Casinos at casinos.bandcamp.com and the Hector Collectors music at thehectorcollectors.bandcamp.com. We will be back with more and better Motown in two weeks, so in the meantime, do like we keep telling you guys and be ever wonderful.